Okay, mate, 40 here. So one trope that I notice a lot in the news media is how mean Republicans are, how they are not friendly, that they don't care about people. Essentially, they're inhuman, robotic, you know, slaves to Milton Friedman economics or some such. They don't you know, recognize the humanity in people. And this trope is getting a particular workout right now with regard to Ron DeSantis, the uh, Republican governor of Florida, who's very likely going to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024 and seems highly competent. And uh, Mark Leibovich was, was writing in The Atlantic about how you know, Ron DeSantis is just too mean, too unfriendly, just not enough of a people person to become president of the United States, that uh, campaigning will expose his poor personal skills. And I'm thinking about Clarence Thomas. Like Clarence Thomas is renowned among all the Supreme Court justices for being the most friendly. He's the most outgoing. Like he's the person who's most likely to talk to ordinary people. Like he's far and away the friendliest U.S. Supreme Court justice. And where has that gotten him? Like what has that done for him? Okay? You have this trope that uh, Republicans are unfriendly, that they're cold, cool, cruel, calculating, lack people skills. Well, Clarence Thomas has abundant people skills. Right? He's very friendly, very outgoing guy. Ronald Reagan is a friendly, warm, outgoing person. But uh, doesn't, doesn't affect the liberal news media tropes about how you know, Republicans just don't care about people. They completely lack compassion. They lack people skills. So, Mark Leibovich and a lot of journalists are just absolutely sure that campaigning will expose Ron DeSantis' lack of people skills and will absolutely doom his presidential campaign. So, count me skeptical. But he is a highly popular governor of Florida. Florida used to be a purple state. Florida used to be poised equally between Democrats and Republicans. Like Barack Obama won Florida in 2012. Ron DeSantis has probably played a part in turning Florida red. Also, I suspect a lot of people, Republicans are tired of living in blue states and they've moved to Florida and perhaps that's also contributed to Florida turning red. But it's really hard to argue that uh, Ron DeSantis has not been an effective governor. Like, he won his confrontation with Disney. Is there any major confrontation that Ron DeSantis has not won? Like, I don't recall him backing down on anything important. And I'm not a Ron DeSantis partisan. I'm not devoted to one candidate or another. But uh, I'm I'm a little more sanguine about his chances than the the mainstream media. Just so convinced that he's like the typical Republican who shows no compassion, no empathy, 
you know, personal skills is just incredibly self-centered and uh, predatory. Just uh, treats people as instruments. Just you know, gets all he can from people. And uh, when when they're no longer useful to him, then he just lets them go. And I think these analyses are accurate about Ron DeSantis' personality. But I'm not at all sure that it's going to be an election killer for him. But people use people. Right? It depends on the situation. So when you're under the pressure of being governor of Florida and you're in the center of controversy, I think you're going to be much more predisposed towards you know, treating people as instruments for getting what you need as opposed to when things are good and easygoing and then uh, there's often more room in your heart for love. I know how often I have felt kind of empty inside, ignored inside, that I was just you know, being treated as a cog in the machine. That did not bring out the best in me. When I get hungry, angry, lonely, tired, that does not bring out the best in me. When I get disconnected from the people I love, that does not bring out the best in me. When I'm under tremendous pressure, right, I tend to treat people much more in an instrumental fashion. But when I'm aligned and I'm feeling good and happy, right, when I'm filled up, then I can be much more kind and loving towards other people. Right? Happy people are naturally considerate and generous with others. Right? If someone is consistently mean and ungenerous, then they're not very happy. They may be under tremendous pressure due to a situation, or they've been wired a certain way, so they are not at ease with themselves. If you're at ease with yourself, then you're going to be much less anxious, and therefore you'll be much less maladaptively preoccupied with yourself. And then you naturally notice what's going on with other people. And when you notice what's going on with other people, when you see them suffering, when you see them struggling with something, then you naturally want to help, help out. You don't you just uh, notice people suffering and feel completely indifferent if you are basically at ease with yourself. So I've often thought, oh, my boss is a big meanie. Oh, my boss doesn't care about me. Oh, my boss is nasty. Oh, my boss is a jerk. But uh, much of that, those times, it's just the situation of the pressure that my boss was under. It led to him you know, acting in a way that I thought was mean or selfish. So often... Republicans who get attacked for being mean and selfish, or Democrats too, it's just the pressure of the situation that they're under. Or it's the unfortunate miswiring in their system. So often unhappy people are told to be less selfish, and that doesn't usually work. Like, that didn't really work for me. Like, I had to get to a point of ease with myself 
And so Alexander Technique helped with that. 10 years of psychotherapy helped with that. Having friends and community helped with that. But more than anything, 12-step programs helped with that. And then when I felt at ease with myself, then I'm naturally inclined to be a little more generous, a little more empathic with other people. When I was walking around with what felt like, you know, a gaping psychic wound, I was not naturally inclined to be, you know, caring and empathic towards other people. I remember my therapist said, I have this image of you just, you know, sucking on the mother's breast and trying to get absolutely everything he can because he fears that at any time, the guest, the breast will be withdrawn and he'll never be able to have milk again. That's kind of how I was going through life, you know sleeping with every woman I can, getting all the sex I can, getting all the positions I can, getting everything I can, getting all the attention I can, getting all the fame I can. I was just greedily lapping it up, sucking it up. Because I was walking around with the feeling of a gaping psychic wound inside. So... Maybe I'm sure there are selfish people who simply by taking on volunteer roles or by deliberately making an effort to be less selfish have found that their capacity for empathy is caught fire. Right? But I think generally speaking, people have to get a sense of ease with themselves and their place in the universe. Generally speaking, it helps to feel... You know, better in your body, like to get into better shape, to exercise, to work out, to do things like Alexander Technique, get the necessary physical therapy that you might need. People do much better when they feel at ease, comfortable, alert, alive, vibrant, healthy, strong in their bodies. That, That then has a dominating effect on our psychology. If you're tight in your body, more likely to be tight in your emotions and how you relate to others. If you're at ease in your body, you're much more likely to be at ease with yourself, with other people. If you're tired in your body, your thinking and your emotions are going to be tired. So, many of these dominating characteristics that we ascribe to people. Uh, Joe is kind, Jeff is honest, John is strong, Peter is generous, Phil is funny, Jack is great at running things. They're situational rather than essential. They left us often make fun of the right preoccupation with essentialism that uh, peoples, races, religions, cultures have certain essential qualities and in reality how uh, blacks, whites, browns, Asians, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Baha'i express themselves depends on situation, depends on time and place. You can't understand anything anyone said or done unless you locate an action in a particular time and place. So Ron DeSantis 
is a driven man. Uh, he very much wants to become president of the United States. People who want to become president of the United States are not normal people. And so it requires considerable sacrifice, self-abnegation, and drive and energy to become president of the United States. That means frequently you're not very nice, not very empathic, that you use people. So right now, walking over the Brisbane River, I am 41 days into my Australian vacation. I feel good and at ease in my body. I just bought some new cushioned insoles. So I've got two pairs of cushioned insoles. I'm racking up the miles. A physical therapist told me that my you know, feet were, were so shaped they were highly predisposed to, to injury and that I should give them a break and you know, try to stay off them as much as possible. Well, I found the exercises that I need to do and the cushioned insoles that I need to protect my feet. And uh, I'm knocking out about 10 miles a day on average during my stay in Australia. So that means one or two days a week, I do virtually no walking. And then the other five days a week, I probably average 12 miles, 13, 14 miles a day. And I've got very few obligations right now. So it's easy for me to feel at ease in my body and my soul. I'm here with friends. I'm here with family. Right? My, my body, soul, and psyche are all being fed. I've got abundant spare time. I've got money in the bank. I've got very few worries and concerns. It's a lot easier to display some empathy for others. When I'm at ease with myself, you know, other people find me a lot easier to deal with. When I'm self-loathing, as I've struggled with much of my life, then I tend to be much more harsh and cutting with other people. Now, I notice that how we treat ourselves pretty much predicts how we'll treat others. So theoretically, if you're really tough on yourself, you can be really generous with others. And I often hear that inscription about people oh he's really tough on himself but very generous with others so I hear those theories and those statements but they're never tr virtually never true in my experience I find people who are kind to themselves overwhelmingly tend to be kind to others people who hate themselves tend to be hateful towards others in addition to have all sorts of unnecessary tension and restriction and compression patterns of you know muscular tension pulling down and in on themselves distorting muscular tension patterns tends to go hand in hand with feeling ill at ease with oneself and behaving in an awkward frequently antisocial manner with others G'day I'm 40 here so they're rehearsing for some hard rock concert in the background and I had a hilarious live video going about you know an Australian Christmas carol. You know, Aussies get ready for Christmas. And uh, just as I was going live, 
there the hard driving rock just ended but uh, at the botanical gardens here in Sydney got some hard driving rock in the background as they rehearse for a big show and thinking about how Richard Spencer has been on a tear the last few months talked about how Republicans can't win without embracing the crazy right? only by embracing the, the crazy can they, can they win and right, that's fun right? that's not the type of talking point you're going to get on Fox News Uh, and uh, Richard tends to state his opinions with, with great passion and he sense that he really believes what he's saying. But uh, what, what exactly does Richard know about winning? And I can't claim that I know a whole heck of a lot about, about winning either, but uh, Richard does not have a track record of winning. He has a track record of losing. Almost every project he starts has uh, gone downhill into the trash can. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, who Richard absolutely despises, right? Richard says, you like Christian nationalism? Christian nationalism means reign by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> Which is a great line. Very thought provocative comment. <laughs> but you can despise her what you like that Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to be in a pretty powerful position. She's in good with Kevin McCarthy. She's on tap to sit in some powerful House committees. She won a resounding re-election. She has you know, tempered some of the anti-Jewish things she used to say. Now she's condemning Nick Quintus' anti-Semitism. So she's learning how to play the game. It reminds me of Robert Moses. Right? There's a classic book about Robert Moses. came out in the 1970s, and he was started out as such a young idealist. And as a pure idealist, he wasn't very successful. He just had failure after failure. Then, when he accepted the direction of Democratic Governor Al Smith... And he was willing to listen to people more experienced than him in the ways of winning in politics, he became a tremendous power broker. Robert Moses became perhaps the most powerful man in New York City government over the course of 50 years. Because he learned to play the game, learned to take advice, learned to take direction, learned to humble himself, to listen to people who might know more than he did. And he became a winner. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, right, she's no Robert Moses, but she's humbled herself to listen to other people. She's learning how to play the game. And she seems to be doing it effectively. While Lauren Bobert, who used to seem like the far more sane version of Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Lauren Bobert just barely, barely, barely won re-election. So... Uh, success in politics does not depend upon the rationality of your ideology. Uh, it does not depend on the beauty of your prose, the profundity of your thought. Uh, there are a lot else figures into winning in politics. 
beyond being able to mount you know, comprehensive and thoughtful political philosophy. I mean, just from my outside perspective, it sure seems to me like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is winning and Richard Spencer's had to subvert his ideology and turn it into a religion, Apollonianism, which is, you know, a more socially acceptable form of Nazism, but uh, trying to do it under the disguise of religion so that he won't attract as much criticism and opposition. So he's learned to play by the rules of normal society. So to that extent, that's, that's a win for him. His life seems easier. He seems much happier. He seems much more well-balanced. He seems much more sober. He's cut way back on the alcohol. But uh, he's essentially been driven out of politics. And so he is trying to channel his talents into forming a new religion. He's actually a fun and compelling political commentator. And so he does bring the contrarian hot takes on a regular basis in Twitter spaces and on his Substack, And that's where he's so good. So I think it's vitally important that we put ourselves and other people in the correct genre. So is uh, Richard Spencer primarily a philosopher or an intellectual? No, he is a contrarian pundit. He is good at the talk radio live streaming game. Uh, ben Shapiro, political philosopher? No. Intellectual? No. He's a talk show host. He's a provocateur. He's a Republican activist and pundit. Stephen Turner, philosopher of the social sciences. He is a philosopher. Okay. He is an intellectual. Then, 40, what the hell are you? I guess I'm a blogger and a vlogger. Someone who shares his opinions and tries hard to you know, place them in context so that I'm not claiming expertise that I, I don't have. So I'm not you know, exaggerating my depth of knowledge. I'm trying to you know, stay within the realm of reality. I'm a bloke who shares his opinions with a few dozen, a few hundred, a few thousand people. And some people seem to get some benefit from them. And I enjoy sharing them. But I'm not primarily an intellectual or a philosopher <laughs> or a theologian. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a great talk show host. Probably what I do best is interview people and bring incongruous people together. Like doing a solo show is very taxing. Right? I need something to work off of. Like, you know, why do I play so much Richard Spencer on my shows? Because he's like a hundred mile an hour baseball pitch that if I hit it, the ball's gonna go far. Right? If I just make any contact whatsoever with what he's saying, you know, the force and the power of what he's saying, if I then make contact with it in the realm of reality, I've got a good chance of saying something that's useful, interesting, even perhaps compelling. Now, for most people I listen to, I've got nothing to add. 
Like when I listen to Steve Saylor, I've got nothing to add on top of what he says. So most professors, most people I listen to, I just don't have anything profound to add. But just like there are some hitters who can hit change-ups but can't hit fastballs, there are some hitters who can hit fastballs but they can't hit curveballs. For whatever reason, I feel like I can consistently hit out a useful comment on something that Richard Spencer is saying. And I can't do the same with you know, Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, you know, dozens of other people that I listen to. I just don't have anything to add. I don't have any energy or enthusiasm to add to their comments. So it was better when I was doing group shows, right? I'm much better suited to doing a group show, having guests, having co-hosts. When I'm on my own, I'd quickly run out of things to say within two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes max. And I need someone to feed off of because I don't have a regular co-host right now. I had to play excerpts from articles and lectures and podcasts. And I need someone or something that's going to provoke me. Right? You need a lot of energy and enthusiasm and passion to do what I'm doing right now. And so you need someone who provokes you, like brings out the energy and the passion that gets you thinking. You, you, take, you want to take up the challenge. G'day, May 40 here. December 15th, lovely Thursday afternoon in Brisbane, Australia. And you may have heard of supply-side economics and demand-side economics. So supply-side economics is embodied by Reagan, you create incentives for people to produce economic goods by reducing their taxation burden. Then demand-side economics, you put money in the hands of people who are most likely to spend it. That's Keynesian economics. And then there's a whole other category. It's called faith-based economics. So this is New Yorker article on the leader of Ethiopia. Won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. Year later, his army was committing genocide. Known as the King of Kings, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, elect of God, Selassie was hailed as the culmination of a dynasty that, according to legend, had begun with the union of King Solomon. Okay, let's fast forward. Country. But he says, this is for the future generations. His attitude is, why only concentrate on the problems? We need to show that we are more than the conflict. Habib. Right. This is faith-based economics. ...finds funding for his ventures wherever he can. He has held fundraisers on the sites of Addis's new parks, where he can lean on his country's billionaires, many of whom built their fortunes under the old regime. In 2020... I didn't know Ethiopia had billionaires. God, I must be some kind of racist. ...his wife's office announced that it had solicited donations to construct 20 schools in the countryside. Abi gave some $2 million in profits from his book to build more. He has also printed new currency, announcing that it was necessary both to deter financial crimes and to salvage the country's fractured economy. Yeah, so this is a guy who really likes flashy gestures and beautiful words. So he's got a best-selling book in Ethiopia. He's like the Tony Robbins and Jordan Peterson of Ethiopia. He's got a best-selling book on synergy. 
So he's all about the beautiful gestures, you know, the beautiful shiny objects, you know, the, the grand sounding rhetoric. It has had little effect. During his term, the rate of inflation has been more than 30% a year. Abi likes to present himself as this charismatic leader who puts himself above it all. Stefan Durkin, who teaches economics at Oxford and who has advised Ethiopian governments for decades, said. But his vision is vague, as leaders' visions often are. Well, as African leaders' visions often are in particular. I mean, doesn't Africa suffer from a plethora of big men who talk big, who present you know, grand sweeping visions that are not so good on the follow-through? Durkin described a kind of faith-based economics. He has this belief in free enterprise and prosperity through hard work. It's the prosperity gospel. He's directly coming out of that. I think he just likes the shiny projects. Many of the impressive results that Abit touts, huge wheat farms, irrigation programs, industrial facilities, are the continuation of programs started under the TPLF-led government which focused its development efforts on the countryside. The bee's own initiatives tend to cluster in cities where they can benefit young constituents and, he hopes, impress foreign visitors. Without enough access to domestic investment capital, he needs money from outside. There is much in Ethiopia to attract investors. The country has an educated population, decent infrastructure, and enormous supplies of minerals, water, and arable land. So, yeah, Ethiopia could be the most powerful country in Africa. So, it's not uh, some you know, famine-ridden hellhole. But development, according to a recent IMF report, has faced a long list of impediments. COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, a ferocious drought worsened by climate change. Okay, I think there are bigger impediments to development than any of those. I would say... Demographics, the proclivities of the people, right, habits, trends, culture, ways of relating to one another, organizing that are kind of inimicable to development. Most significantly, the conflict in Tigray has frozen international aid. Is there any tradition of the rule of law in Ethiopia? Without a tradition of the rule of law, it's really hard to develop much. As a result of the fighting and the evidence of war crimes, the Biden administration has cut off Ethiopia's access to credits and loans. But Abiy has other funders who are less concerned with human rights violations. On a helicopter trip to Awash National Park, a swampy wilderness east of Addis, he traveled with a group of Emiratis, whom he introduced vaguely as friends. Abiy had built a lakeside tourist resort in the park. The water was disconcertingly infested with crocodiles, but the landscape was ruggedly beautiful, and the developers had erected kid-friendly animal statues around the grounds. The resort was one of... Just waiting for these poor kids to get eaten by crocodiles. ...a dozen that a bee was having constructed in Ethiopia. The idea was to seek international partners that would run them as concessions and to use them as hubs to develop the countryside. Over dinner... A long table by a swimming pool. We listened as Abi spoke about how Ethiopia could be useful to its allies. For one thing, he suggested, Ethiopia could fight their wars for them. He had noticed that Westerners no longer seemed eager to send their sons into combat. That's nice. We could use Ethiopians to fight our wars. 
That sounds handy. We could send a few thousand of them to defend Taiwan. But Ethiopians were good fighters, he said, and did not have the same qualms. The Emiratis mostly kept to themselves, but an amiable man named Fahad Abdul Rahman bin Sultan introduced himself as the head of the UAE Red Crescent Society. Bin Sultan told me that Ethiopia could become a tourist hub if it was developed properly. It has abundant water, and it is convenient to the Arabian Peninsula. Yeah, maybe a little less genocide, a little less rape, a little less crime. That might help. Really hot at this time of the year. Abi, he said, was a visionary. If he can have 10 years in power, Ethiopia will be transformed like Egypt was with Sisi. He didn't seem bothered by Sisi's fierce repression of his political opponents. In Ethiopia, the Emiratis are a less significant presence than the Chinese, who have been in the country for more than a decade. In Addis, Chinese laborers in overalls are ubiquitous, expanding the internet. So in Australia and in California, right, they essentially forbade the Chinese immigrating to, to California, to Australia, because they worked hard. They worked harder than the natives. They were willing to work longer. They were willing to take less money. And like the average bloke didn't like what uh, Chinese immigrant labor did to his wages. So the amount of immigration you allow into your country, that essentially decides your wage rates. If you want to create a good living for average blokes, you can't allow in much immigration. Airport, working around the clock on the parkland known as Friendship Square, and on the spaceship-like planetarium. Finishing up the commercial bank of Ethiopia, an undulating spire that is among the tallest buildings in Africa. Roads and bridges are being constructed throughout Ethiopia, and the Chinese play a key role in almost all of them. Isn't that nice of the Chinese? Always so helpful. So, so very eager to be of assistance. Okay, May 40 here. Looking out of the beautiful Brisbane River. Thursday afternoon, December 15. No country holds more of Ethiopia's external debt than China. The Ethiopians still haven't figured out how they're going to pay down the debt, which is a problem, a U.S. diplomat with extensive experience in the Horn of Africa told me. I'm sure the Chinese will be very understanding. This is a New Yorker article about the leader of Ethiopia. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019, and then his armies committed genocide in 2020. Abi occasionally fretted over how much money he was borrowing. If you are a really good person, he told me, pray for me for just one thing, that I can manage our debt. He told me that he would like to work more with Western companies, but that the Chinese had been useful. The Americans should step up their role here, he said. But if they don't come, there are others, you know, who are interested. Ethiopia's relationship with the United States was a preoccupation for Abi. During a helicopter trip through the countryside, he turned away from the view and declared how much he loved the U.S. Really, he said, America is a beautiful country. So I'm not sure how effective it is to ask a, you know, a secular New Yorker reporter to pray for you and pray for your country. And the Americans are very good people. And I know the country may be better than some Americans. I've driven from Washington all the way to California. In the mid-2000s, Ethiopia became a regional ally of the U.S. 
sending troops to invade Somalia to fight al-Shabaab. Isn't Ethiopia our greatest ally? So I guess there are no permanent friends and uh, no permanent enemies in the world. Well, there are shifting interests. Surgeon group linked to Al-Qaeda. After Abiy's time in the military, he worked for the government in cybersecurity and intelligence and spent some time in U.S. training programs. In the Iraq war, I fought with him, he said. I was the one who would send intelligence from this part of the world to the NSA on Sudan and Yemen and Somalia. Yeah, why do we have troops in these countries who end up getting killed by Islamic terrorists? Just uh, not sure it's really in our best interest. The NSA knows me. I would fight and die for America. Nabi gave a disgusted wave of his hand. Then these guys came. He was referring to the Biden administration. They don't know who their true friends are, he said. Since the war began... So I noticed with the Democratic presidents there, from the Democratic Party, I mean, that they're more likely to want to make alliances based on human rights. And uh, human rights is a, not exactly an objective category. I mean, by what Democratic Party members and mainstream Republicans mean by human rights is that uh, you know, fit in with you know, modern liberalism. LGBTQ rights. They made the mistake of talking publicly and down to me. Samantha Power announced she was coming to Ethiopia and was going to meet me without even consulting me. That's not the way it's done. So I didn't see her, and she left very upset. Now there is a different approach. They know they must behave respectfully. U.S. officials have said that Abiy's office ignored their attempts to schedule a meeting. Even though Abiy was desperate for American investment, he couldn't bring himself to be too reverent about its politicians. Yeah. So he's desperate for their investment. He really wants America's help. But what's more important than that to him? That's flexing his ego. Like, saying what he wants to say. Like, singing the song he wants to sing. So that's more important to him than uh, his own country's best interests. Right, when you're going to be a servant of the people, right, you're going to want to uh, submerge your own ego at times. Right? There are more important things than your own ego. He told me that he had taken a big intake of breath when he heard that Joe Biden had fallen off his bicycle. I wish he acted his age, he said. He went on, Obama was good at making inspiring speech. That's a great point. Like, 80-year-olds should not be riding bicycles. Uh, generally speaking, I think 70-year-olds should not be riding bicycles. Right? Y your bones break much more easily as you age. So there are other exercises you can do with a stationary bike where you're less likely to fall and hurt yourself. But he made more promises than he could fulfill. I'd be grimaced when I asked about Donald Trump. He did a lot of damage to America's image. Let's not even talk about him in the same way as the others. Without discernible irony, Abi said that he was concerned by the tumultuous condition of the United States. America's politics have been ruined by entertainment culture and media. Which... Yeah, he's concerned about 
the state of democracy and the stability of the United States. Isn't that kind of him? Leader of Ethiopia is afraid for the stability and democracy of the United States. That's why its politicians are always trying to behave as if they are in a drama, he said. The world needs America, but it needs it to be stable and for its system to reflect institutional continuity. Jeff Feltman, who served as the U.S. Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa until this spring, told me that he was familiar with the bee's complaints and with his habit of discounting the evidence of war crimes. I had the same tour as you, he said. Abi was saying what a man of vision he was, that the U.S. simply did not understand him. So this guy loves to talk a lot, doesn't really like to listen, which is not usually an effective attitude or procedure. He was trying to move Ethiopia into the future, and that Tigray was just a distraction. The charm offensive didn't work. A current senior U.S. official put it succinctly, We'd like to support the PM's economic domestic program, but we can't until there are no more human rights atrocities. Oh, yeah. So, every nation has human rights atrocities. Right, this is just self-defeating attitude that you're going to run much of your foreign policy on the basis of some subjective liberal partisan conception of uh, human rights. Abiy's war with the Tigrayans had a brutal second act. In June 2021, days after the election in which he secured his second term, the TPLF launched a lightning counteroffensive, retaking its capital, Makali, and parading thousands of captured Ethiopian soldiers through the streets. Abiy was humiliated. Almost overnight, his army had been routed and Tigray had been lost. There was even talk among Tigrayans of seceding from Ethiopia. The conflict settled into a dismal stalemate. Abiy's government sought to isolate Tigray, cutting off its electricity, communications, air links, and food supplies. The United Nations warned of widespread starvation and called for humanitarian relief to feed four million of Tigray's roughly six million people. Last so, the fulfilling the human right of feeding these people simultaneously you know, undercuts a political program to unite the country and to bring a rebel area under control. So we had a flood here, 2011, another one in 1974, then another one just a few months ago. But the 1974 flood was the biggest of all. Ball, in an effort to break the siege, Tigrayan forces went on the offensive again overrunning several Amhara cities and marching to within 120 miles of Addis Ababa. Right, so if you want to win a war, you usually have to put human rights considerations second or third or fourth. And uh, sometimes winning a war is the most effective way to bring peace and an end to massive human rights violations. So yeah, sometimes the ends do justify the means. Hoping to rally a patriotic defense of the capital, Abid traveled to the front, where he was photographed in fatigues alongside his soldiers. As the international community urged the Tigrayans to withdraw, Abid's forces struck with the help of drones, 
reportedly supplied by Turkey, Iran, and the UAE. By Christmas, the Tigrayan forces had retreated. With the Tigrayans trapped in the north, Abi seemed to be looking for a way to de-escalate. Gabriel Negatu, an influential Ethiopian businessman who lives in Washington, D.C., but remains close to Abi, told me that the offensive had been halted for financial reasons. The war was costing hundreds of millions of dollars. That was why the PM pulled back, he said. Also, he didn't want to be responsible for two to three million Tigrayans starving, possibly. Yeah, well, sometimes millions of people starving is an effective tool for winning a war, and war is the continuation of politics, right? By other means. So if you can't talk to people and arrange some kind of settlement, and people won't listen to reason, then war becomes increasingly likely. To death, because they hadn't been able to plant seeds. Abi thought that a long-term occupation of Tigray was unsustainable, Nagatu said. But parts of the military felt that he had given up the fight too soon. Samhara allies and the Eritreans were angry too. They wanted to finish off the TPLF. So we're in the wonderful botanic gardens here in Brisbane. Brisbane's not as stunningly beautiful as Sydney, but it's got its own subtle, understated charms. Abiy's aides insisted that he was still seeking unity. The PM believes our strength lies in our diversity, one told me. Our strength lies in our diversity. Wait a second. You've got a massive civil war going on that risks millions of lives. Civil war that is uh, first and foremost probably generated, stimulated, produced by this diversity. And yet you want to argue that diversity is your strength? But as the conflict grew more intense, Abi began referring to TPLF members as the cancer of Ethiopia and as devils and weeds. Right, so sometimes diversity is a good thing. Sometimes you can enlist it as an argument. Sometimes diversity provokes and promotes growth. But uh, just as often, diversity and proximity lead to deadly conflict, such as in Ethiopia. Today, May 40 here, the Riverside Food Court in Brisbane. It's a beautiful Thursday afternoon, December 15, 2022. And uh, one reason I enjoy wearing a yarmulke out is that uh, really helps you meet your fellow Jews. So just sitting here by the Brisbane River, got a lovely Hebrew greeting by a bloke who just moved here from Melbourne a couple of years ago and apparently there's quite the growing Jewish community in Brisbane. So here in Brizzy, he can afford like a five bedroom home with a swimming pool. I couldn't afford that in Melbourne. And Melbourne is the traditional center of Jewish life. It's where you get the most intense, most numerous Orthodox Judaism participants, institutions, right? So Melbourne tends to be much more Eastern European in origins. Sydney tends to be much more Central European and Western European. So a lot of Hungarians moved to Sydney, people from Germany, 
Jews from France, Spain, uh, England, and the Jews of Melbourne tend to come much more from Eastern Europe. So they tend to be more traditional, more intense in their Judaism. So in uh, 1918, uh, there, there was a, an observer who remarked that uh, Australia, of all the countries in the world, is probably the least influenced by Judaism. <laughs> right? Judaism made the smallest imprint on Australia, it's like a 1918, than any other country. So after World War II, a lot of Holocaust survivors moved to Australia. And now Australia is definitely in the top 10 of uh, Jewish countries. And uh, Jews are mainly in Melbourne, about uh, 30,000, and uh, in Sydney, about 20,000. Then, when I was here 22 years ago, there were about 2,000 Jews in uh, Brisbane. But uh, the community's growing. They've got a day school. They've got uh, four major synagogues, including a liberal synagogue. Uh, Chabad is growing here. And uh, 100 families have moved here recently. Just uh, building up Jewish life, kind of grassroots from the bottom up. You have to put more of an effort in. It's not like living in L.A. or San Francisco or New York, where Judaism's just in the air. So when you live in the the Jewish outback, right? (laughs) You have to be more deliberative. You have to plan. You have to make much more of an effort doesn't come nearly as naturally. So as I've been walking along, people say, he's Jewish. So very, very rare. In fact, I've never seen anyone walking around with a yarmulke in Brisbane. And I have spent probably a total of uh, six months of my life in Brisbane since 1989. And yeah, never ever seen anyone walking around with a yarmulke. But it's a wonderful opportunity for me to come here and say a bracha, Jewish blessing, where maybe no one with a yarmulke has said one before. So I was talking to my mate Tim Humphreys about Queensland politics, and apparently Bob Catter, who's about the most right-wing member of parliament, the Catter Party, he one of his claims to fame is that he egged the Beatles when they came out here in the 1960s because he thought they were a dissolute bunch. So I, on my mother's side, have three generations from central Queensland. And about six years ago, due to a quirk in the Australian political system, central Queensland elected a national senator, Fraser Anning, was pretty much a white Australia bloke. So he only got something like 75 votes. <laughs> but due to the quirks of how the, the ballot works here, like he became a member of the Australian Senate and like he gave speeches you know, praising the traditional white Australian policy. Uh, he got thrown out after one time, but he quite had created quite the stir. So he was the most right-wing member of parliament then after him would, would be the Catter Party and Bob Catter, but uh, Fraser Anning, he was too racist for the Catter Party and for Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party. That's how far out he was, mate. 
So I've noticed that Aussies have taken up queuing and this is new, right? This is since COVID. So during COVID, people were asked to separate, to queue up. And now when, when the bus comes in, I notice there's not always a big jumble waiting for the bus. There's often a very orderly queue, which is not the Australia I remember. noticing a lot of people use COVID to isolate themselves and I think I've done that too right I was really comfortable during those early months of COVID I was like reading a book a day like those were good times and I think my natural internal direction is towards more solitude than is good for me I have to work against my own nature to be more social to make more commitments with other people, to get together with a group or the minion. On the own, I tend to isolate. And so life is a whole series of challenges, it seems to me. And we use these challenges and we react to these challenges in light of our own predispositions. So many people use things like COVID to isolate. Yeah, other people use difficult times to eat, you know, excess amount of ice cream or to do drugs or to watch pornography. Right? Life is a series of challenges and stimuli. But we use these stimuli and challenges in the directions to which we are predisposed. And so life quickly brings out you know, our maladaptive reactions. And then the actions become habits. And often what starts out as adaptive becomes maladaptive and starts to strangle us. So solitude is great, loneliness sucks. The more scary the world seems to people, the more likely they are to withdraw. The more ill at ease people feel, the more likely they are to withdraw. So when people are kind of a mess inside or a mess in their bodies, then they tend to retreat from the world and from interaction with others, which tends to make problems worse. So the Great Reset, right? That's where the global elite supposedly using COVID to you know, institute socialism and take away our basic human rights. Right, that's a talking point on the, on the right. Well... It comes from Rahm Emanuel, Barack Obama's chief of staff, who said, never let a crisis go to waste. But I don't think we, as people, you know, let anything go to waste. We just tend to use things in life to send us along paths that we are naturally disposed towards. Right? No woman, no song, no cry, no podcast, no book. No ideology, no religion, no culture, no work of art is going to send you in a direction you don't want to go for very long or for very deep. Right? So some people sometimes ruin their lives over a book such as Kevin McDonald's Culture of Critique. But uh, 
Kevin McDonald's book isn't the real issue here. The real issue is that some people just have a strong self-destructive urge. And it just so happened that they used Kevin McDonald's culture of critique as the bomb with which they wanted to, which they couldn't help blow up their lives. Now, I don't think people usually deliberately choose to blow up their lives, but uh, these self-destructive compulsions, I think, are you know, active in all of us to varying degrees, which is why God says in Deuteronomy, I put before you this day a choice between life and death. Choose life, because the the human tendency towards death is usually present just to, to varying degrees. And so it's a lot easier to choose life if you are connected with people, if you love people, if you care about people, if you have a community that you're dedicated to, if you have specific people that you believe in, want to help, want to be around. bereft of that sort of human connection, then I notice I go haywire. I start acting weird, then the more weird I act, right, the worse I feel, the more isolated I get, which is a viciously reinforcing cycle. Downward spiral. Until luckily I've had friends who've family said, Oi, mate, hang on here. You're not headed in a good direction. <laughs>